Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the middle of the heartland, USA, pontificate about <laughs> politics, current events, and foreign relations. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. Craig, let's start with the obvious news item, chaos in the House uh, this week. As f- the first time in history, um, in the um, midterm, a speaker is ousted by his own party. Uh, I mean, this was... Um, I think shocking by all accounts, even as we knew about the drama leading up to it, whether or not this was actually going to happen. Not only that, Speaker McCarthy has the shortest speakership <laughs> in uh, U.S. history. Um, the well, how many died a typhoid beat him even. Right. I mean, we're talking about, um, uh, I mean, he's been Speaker for... Um, like 260... Not even a year. No, 214, 15 days or something right. like that. I mean, we're talking about like eight months, um, nine months. So, I mean, looking at this whole shit show, Kevin McCarthy, when, when, the, when the Republicans took over control of the House, he basically said, we have an ungovernable majority. We don't have a big enough majority to actually govern. To do that, we're probably going to need 20 to 30 seats in the Republican side to govern. And I think one of the, the lessons— big red wave, remember? <laughs> didn't happen. But I think one of the lessons that we're being reminded of is that— if you expect something out of the Republicans in the House, they need that 20 to 30 seat majority because they just don't play enough team game no. to be able to get anything done. Because that there is, is a very different than Pelosi's approach. Yes. And there's a minority, but strong minority who have no interest in governing. They're chaos agents. They have a burn it to the ground mentality, and they will continue to behave that way time and time again, as we've seen. And so that is enough to cause the dysfunction that we're witnessing. So in order for, for, McCarthy to get this job, Gates and Powell force him into this rule where it only takes one vote basically to have a, a parliamentary style vote of no confidence, kick him out of the, the... For any reason. Any reason. Kick him out of the, the, the leadership position or the speakership position and then basically force him through, through another vote. Right. And when Pelosi was in charge, it took half of the majority. So a majority of the majority could, could basically vacate the speaker and force a vote. So if you have the majority, you have 200 and... 50 people just for an easy term it would take 126 of them to vote to start this procedure to try to to change the speaker of the house and with the house being such a large diverse unwieldy group that is the type of protection that the speaker has to have with such a small majority with so many people getting elected to 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 the house that i would say fall into the non-traditional republican role what they were able to do is force mccarthy into this terrible deal which said one person any person could basically vacate the the speakership and force him through a, a voting process but again. see this is just one out of many reasons actually i have no sympathy for mccarthy because he sealed his fate sure by agreeing to that deal which was asinine in the first Stupid. place and he has continuously been over backwards to serve that very small fringe uh, freedom caucus group knowing that's an impo- that's impossible to do i mean even to the you know there's about 10 or 12 classified moderates in the house caucus who represent biden districts and he has played more to the fringe and he has to the, that group and you know in addition to what i think are unforgivable acts like um uh, agreeing to 
override the election back mm-hmm. on um, at, just after January 6th, um, you know, uh, voting against the nine, uh, January 6th commission, yep. um, getting rid of Liz Cheney from leadership, who, by the way, I heard, I don't know if the, this is accurate, that she was actually lobbying Democrats to vote no and I think to she not was. vote present, which I can will believe completely. That sounds right. Remember, too, he headed down to Mar-a-Lago after J6 yeah. and really was the principal character in re- in resurrecting Trump in the party. Yeah, he gave license for the rest of the House Republicans to do that. He's their leader, and he has shown no backbone this entire time. He has not stood up. Um, the only credit I can give him is that he agreed to the continuing resolutions to keep the government funded um, at the last minute, but that's it. I mean, and so this was... I think inevitable. It was a matter of when, not if. And we saw the when happened. And frankly, there's been this like haranguing in the you know mainstream press. You know, should Democrats have tried to save him? Should they have voted the way they did? What do Democrats owe McCarthy? He did not even attempt to make a deal with them. No. The only reason Democrats should have come to the table to save his speakership is if he was willing to make significant concessions on Ukraine aid, on um, long-term government funding, keeping the government an operation, changing the House rules. There's a litany of items. And if he was willing to compromise on all of those, that would be a different ballgame. He wasn't willing to compromise really on any of those. Brandon, I'm trying to whip up a a pithy little uh, analogy here where the Democrats were willing to be a cheap date. But right. but you at least had to make you have some to come effort. To the table or I mean, yeah. I mean, we were willing to play Lauren Boebert to whomever that to McCarthy's whomever her date was. But you at least had to make some attempt. My understanding is McCarthy McCarthy never reached out once to the Democrats. Right. Never put anything on the table and never made any attempt to say, "I need help. I know this is going to cost me. What what can we do to work together?" No, he never did that. He, he never did. I never attempted. Plus, he understandably angered Democrats when he released the bill, I mean, the last funding bill, um, at the very last minute, they didn't give them enough time to read it. Um, and again, there's some uh, debate on whether or not he actually, uh, the last continuing resolution, he wanted Democrats to actually vote against that so he could basically place the blame on them yeah. instead of um, his own caucus. But but it all goes back to why should Democrats bail him out? I mean, the, the one good thing about this, at the end of the day, Democrats can say, hey, this is your problem. This is your caucus. This is your ungovernable mess. Like, you fix it. You deal with it. It's not our place no. to fix and you, bail you, you out. You never stop your opponent making a mistake. No. We were never going to step in front of this train because it's not our place to. Brandon, you've you've worked on the Hill. You've bid on a senator staff. This is this is one oh one. If you're relying on the other side to bail you out when your party revolts on you, that's just a bad strategy on, on oh, your part. Completely. Um and uh, I rarely like quote myself on here, but I was proud of a, <laughs> a tweet that I did um because I was actually retweeting uh, McCarthy's farewell speech i guess if you could call it that I it don't wasn't know you, a bad one it wasn't it was a bad good. one but i the one I- issue i had is when he said he's going to continue to fight outside of the house oh that's just that's just okay so th- this is how i comment on it i'm like the words fight and mccarthy have never been uttered in the same <laughs> sentence until now by kevin himself mccarthy has never fought for anything except the power of the gavel 
His refusal to fight against the MAGA extremists is why he's in this position in the first place. He gave them the noose by which to hang him. I mean, (laughs) that's really what it comes down to. That's why I had no sympathy. So here's the notes that I took on on McCarthy, because there was a way for McCarthy to negotiate his way into the speakership role that this didn't have to happen. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy made the classic mistake. He thought the road to the speakership was negotiating with Gates and the crazies, not not, not realizing you never negotiate with crazy people because they're crazy and they never hold up their end of the bargain. This is what my advice would have been to uh, McCarthy in January. Listen, what you want to do is get the 10 to 12 people who think at one point in their career, they might want to be Speaker of the House. Jordan, Scalise, Chip Roy, Emmer, hell, even throw Hakeem Jeffries in there and stand in front of these people and say, hey, this is a short-term job. I know that. And one of you is going to get the job next. If there's any job left to hand over to you two, we've got to put it into this one vote and you're out bullshit right now. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to go out to all of your people and you're basically going to tell them Kevin McCarthy is the only vote to make. We, we are not going to vote for anybody else other than, than, than McCarthy. The negotiation point is with the 10 to 12 people that could potentially beat you in the race, not the eight ding-dongs that yeah. are going to kill you at some point in time. And you let those people explain to Gates, these are your choices, Hakeem Jeffries or McCarthy. McCarthy, for his part, I'll go explain to Trump why this is in his favor, because we're going to give him the impeachment and all these investigations. So maybe we can use him to help pull Gates off us a little bit. But... You guys commit to me. I commit. I'll go tell Trump what the plan is. And then you just tell Gates. You can vote once. You can vote a thousand times. It does not matter. It is McCarthy or it's nothing else. You identify the bench of successors. Correct. You change the power structure so that they're the ones that hold power instead of this fringe. You incentivize them. And you're right. right. You empower them to go make the position what you want it. Yeah. That is a much more viable path to remaining in the speakership than trying to negotiate with some loon job. And instead, like he, first of all, McCarthy, another mistake he made, he failed to anticipate the vendetta that Gates harbored against him going back to the first series of votes. The fact that no matter what he did, Gates was out to get him. This This was was all personal personal for Gates, and he wasn't going to let him forget that. Number two, um, this was also a case study in how time and time again, Donald Trump will um, betray you and leave you to hang out at uh, hang you out to dry. I mean, Trump could have stepped up and like, you know, hammered this group, renegade group and said, Hey, fall in line, support McCarthy. He did it. And that was notable. He, he stayed back. He stayed out of the fray. And for me, what, what, what's so fascinating about this, you can draw a direct line to Ted Cruz. Brandon, what was the year Ted Cruz shut the government down over Obamacare? Was that 2010? No. 2012? I was thinking uh, 2012, maybe. 2012 or 2014. Those were the two years. Yeah. And that was in his first first term as senator, correct? He did that. Uh, Or he had been reelected. I thought that was one of the things. It's like, hey, dude, you just got here. Why don't don't you sit down? It happened a couple times. I was thinking it was the second time. I'd have to look back at that. My point being is that... Ted Cruz is the origin point of when this all started for yeah. the suspension of political reality, making this become routine. Yeah. And he was the, the genesis for saying what really matters is how hard you're willing to fight. That's it. Because Ted Cruz was walking around trying to convince people that they could repeal Obamacare. And if they fought hard enough, Obama would 
take away his signature law, that he would sign that, that, that repeal. That's absolutely ridiculous. This was the start of what we're about is fighting. Political reality doesn't really matter. It was the beginning of the unreality, this fantasy politics That's where, you know, if we stop the you know if we uh stop the government uh from running we can we can accomplish this we can do this and none of that happens and you would think at this point in time as many times as this has happened what happens is they never get what they want the nope. government is always restarted nope. and refunded and they suffer politically at the ballot box typically the entire government system is set up to keep matt gates in check yeah everything about our government is 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 designed to keep him where he in place and not allow him to do the damage that that he does. The other thing Ted Cruz did with that Obamacare fight that I didn't really recognize at the time, Brandon, he opened up politics for everybody. Because now the criteria isn't your political acumen, your ability to to know the rules and regulations. Now it's how hard are you willing to fight? By that I mean, how big of a jackass are you willing to be? How, are you willing to yell? Are you willing to scream? What are you willing to do? If, if, if politics now and if a qualified politician is just someone that's willing to fight, Ted Cruz is the one that opened up a lot of the floodgates that we're dealing with now. And Ted Cruz also made it about uh, personality and self-branding over yep. policy. Because at the end of the day, despite the rhetoric that Ted Cruz said, he didn't really care if anything no. was accomplished or not. Um, he was able to rise out of that, gain stature for his presidential run in yep. 2016. And he leveraged that and continues to leverage that today. I mean, that was all part of a uh, growth uh, political growth for Ted Cruz and to becoming who he is today. There was a quote by um, a Congressman Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota. I don't know if you saw this quote, but it, it encapsulates this um, era that we're in of uh, personality politics and self-branding over governing. He said, the incentive structure in this town is completely broken. We yep. have descended to a place where clicks, TV hits, and the never-ending quest for the most medi- mediocre taste of celebrity drives decisions and encourages juvenile juvenile behavior. That's exactly what it is. And why it's hard to figure out what Gates's next move is, because you don't know what Gates's next move is. Matt Gates has no interest in staying long term in the House or any legislative branch. No. Matt Gates's next move is he wants to be the governor Running of for Florida. governor. Yeah. Because Matt Gates has learned what you really want to do is get into the executive branch. That's when you could really just swing it around it and there's far fewer obstacles to, to get in your way. So if that is true, if, if we accept it as fact that Gates, his next move wants to be the governor of Florida, then we have to accept he makes no move without Donald Trump's approval. Because Donald Trump very much will probably in 2026, the way DeSantis is going, he will be the kingmaker of that race. So whatever Gates is doing, he has to be doing it in lockstep with Trump. Yeah. There's no way he's getting around it. Yeah. So if that's the case, we got to imagine that Trump doesn't really care about McCarthy. McCarthy's just somebody to be used and abused as he as he sees fit. He's a means to an end, McCarthy but is. does Trump have a plan for all of this? Does he have a plan for Gates? No. Or is it just, <laughs> hey, you just do what you do. I've got my stuff going on, and I'll just I, – I won't openly attack you. That's the plan. I mean, that make. could be it at the end of the day. And again, I mean, if that's – 
if that's that could be enough for Gates to be able to get what he wants and ride that to the governor's mansion in Tallahassee. So I think at the very least, that's what he gets out of it, or he gets a full-throated endorsement. I mean, who knows? Brandon, this, this is always a difficulty in life. And it, it's the, the Republicans are in a very, very difficult spot. Matt Gates just did a cynical, crazy, unethical, bad thing. But the point he's making is a thousand percent right. When, if, are we ever going to address the fact that we're $33 trillion in debt? And it's his party that has made this an issue for as long as I've been alive. So the signature issue, one of the signature issues of the Republican Party has ballooned to a $33 trillion debt with no plan to slow it down and no idea how that impacts us. Well, and it's accelerated under that party next uh, you know, year, during the Trump years. Next year, our debt payment is more than our defense budget spending, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it's – and when you look at um, – you can just go online and look at the U.S. debt clock for looking at the crosstabs of like what's owed, what uh, is paid in, what the government collects, and um, our liabilities, uh, you yep. know, med- uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, defense. Like it, it is staggering and it is scary. And you're right. I mean, neither party has been willing to confront this. The Republican Party complains about it, but they've been just as guilty, if not more, over the years in terms of accelerating. No, neither of them have a plan. Gates, at the end of the day, doesn't really care no, about that. No. It's a convenient uh, excuse for him to grow his own brand. But yeah, it's it's a critical issue, and it's going to impact everything from um, housing prices to mortgages. And I mean, it's going to have a ripple effect throughout the entire economy, and <laughs> there's no plan to stop it. And I'm not saying Gates is making a good faith effort on, no, on and, and this debt. isn't the way to do it either. You no. don't default on your existing obligations vis-a-vis the U.S. government to make a point about the, the debt. The debt needs to be tackled separately and you know, and with common purpose, and there needs to be a, a priority attached to it. Um, there should be, well, I think we've had debt commissions in the past. I just think they've probably been sidelined or ignored. I'm pretty sure there was a, yeah. a debt commission so many years ago with a former Democrat and Republican senators that were at the helm that said, hey, we need to tackle this. But G- Gates knows that he, at any point in time, he can play the card. You've been talking for 20 years. You made these promises to fix it, and we never do. We're, we're th- I don't think we've ever been $33 trillion in, in debt before. No, we're, because it's just continually growing. We're, we're, we're in, always breaking, we're shattering records. We're comprehensible amount of money in debt right now. Yeah. Does anybody care about that? Does, what, what Gates did, what we, Gates made a couple tactical mistakes, I think, in his execution. But really, he knows that at the end of the day, they're going to start attacking him now, and they're going to make an attempt to get him out of the conference and maybe even out of Congress. But he knows for all the shit he's pulled, he's got solid ground to stand on. Does anybody know what's going to happen to this $33 trillion debt? How do we service it? What happens when our debt payments are over a trillion dollars, which I think is going to happen in 2024 or 2025? How do we deal with that? How does this debt go away? Is this just a permanent feature? These are serious questions rolled up by a buffoon, and then he shapes them into a bat, and he's using them to beat 96% of the Republican Congress with it. And the Republicans are too inept and too cowardly to do anything about it. Well, on side note, I mean, with interest rates as high as they are now, too, that yeah. adds a whole other dimension to servicing mm-hmm. the debt with those payments. Which Money's is not free anymore. No. I, and 
I mean, at the end of the day, too, the issue is, but this is not the way to do it. I mean, more instability within our government doesn't help no. things either. Um, and it impacts the full faith and credit of the United States. I mean, we were very close to having um, bond and credit rating downgrades um, earlier this summer, you know, when we went through the first round of, you know, mm-hmm. the government shutdown possibility. And so taking us to the brink every time is not a way to address that either. Um, yeah, I, it's just, uh, one other thing I think of this whole topic, um, I find interesting Ann Applebaum had, um, uh, uh, comments on this where she said, whether you, the U S realizes it or not, um, it is essentially, um, requires, um, two parties. It's a multi-party, um, function to, um, stabilize the government. It, um, very her, true. Her actual quote was U S now has a multi-party political system that requires cross-party coalitions to create stable government, just like many European countries. Do so, we, do we, because nothing is structured to do that. No, that's a, and that's, that's what, what I mean. You might, you might say that, but, but that's not how anything. That's functions. not how our no. government is set up no. or our structure. It's happening by accident because of this chaos that we're in, and because there's no other choice. But that norm, the incentive structure is it there for that to happen? No. And I don't think the incentive structure is there for it to continue. So no, that's it, what's scary. We, it, it can't. Yeah, that's not how the system's set up. We're a majoritarian system. We're not 100%. set up in a party yeah. coalition system. <laughs> one, the party that gets one more vote than the other party gets to run the house. But majority rules. Yeah. The other side of that is there's so many checks and balances. It's difficult for them to actually do anything. I. The, the, but we've never been in a place too where we have had so many. Where the institutionalists have lost power and we have so many renegades that are just willing to blow it up. I mean, you can't point to any other time in history where there's been this. So do you think there's a, do you think the American people, if if you did a a poll or a survey or or whatever, do you think the American people are are down with more coalition government? Do you think that's what, are, are people, do you think people are looking at this and saying, Republicans need to get their shit together or, hey, we need to we need to do something that's a little bit more bipartisan and a little bit more forming a coalition like they do in, in Western Europe democracies. I, I think it's the, the first. The and your first was that there. Uh, hey, Republicans, just get your shit together, elect their, your speaker and let's just. Yeah, go I, on I think ultimately I don't think Americans think about this in terms of like the so mechanics of the government itself being more like European. Now, th- I think that's what happened this situation again by accident. So I think Ann Applebaum is right. I don't think that's going to be the sustainable model. I agree. But I will say anecdotally, um, I had polled a lot of my Republican friends and Republicans in my network, some of whom are very conservative to get their sentiment on what was happening this week. And most of them, you know, the words were embarrassed, disgusting, shocked, ashamed um, of their party, what was happening. To a T, I couldn't find one person who had anything good to say or could even qualify this as saying, well... You know, someone needs to take a stand. There was none of that. This, so this isn't, is not. This bo- isn't good trouble. This is not good, good trouble, chaos. and it doesn't bode well for Republicans in next no, year's election because not. this is a hammer that's going to be held over their heads. I mean, I've said this for years, said this for decades now to people about about the Republican Party. Why do you continually vote for a party that expresses their disgust for government every chance they and get? and wanting to tear it down? Why yeah. do you vote for a, a a party that is actively opposed to governing? And they tell you this all. The time, all the time. 
But and see, and that that is a marked change. And we always get back to this: how you know the changes in the political parties. The Republican Party has changed completely. I mean, you, you go back several decades, and it was common in the '50s through the '80s to say Republicans were the adults, right? You know, the adult party. You know, they were about governing, stability. Not anymore. I mean, they're the chaos party. We we need to go back. We need to look at, would it be right to go back to that more traditional approach? Because 50s to the 80s, your legislative branch were Democrats because yeah. that's what they like to do. They like government. They make government run. They legislate. And the president was usually and consistently a Republican. Yeah. Because three things, strong military, keep your taxes un- under control, and socially, we're just going to do the bare minimum we can. Free market approach. It was a simple formula but also for a Republican president. Republican presidents who were uh, governing mindful because, you, yeah, you can't discount the fact that you had Reagan who had a great re- working relationship yep. with Tip O'Neill. You had legislation. You had deal making. You had compromise. I mean, that was the name of the game for so long. I mean, it was it was second nature. It wasn't even thought about. I mean, Democrats and Republicans went out to dinner together. I mean, this and, and the just, great thing about a Republican president back in the day. Never tried to do too much. Yeah, that that was that was the greatest. They knew their limits benefit. and the extent of what they could, could accomplish. Say, At least this dude ain't going to get off the reservation yeah. and try to do some top down bullshit that no one's going to like. Right. And that model held and worked for forty ish years. It's just not going to work now. That's not the game we're playing anymore. Well, you, I don't it, even know what game we are playing at this point. But even on the legislative side, I mean, you go back. Um, it wasn't too long ago we had a Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, and it wasn't too long ago we had, you know, back in the early 2000s, Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. Neither of those individuals would get elected in Republican primary no, today no. Um, or would even be elected to leadership. So that's how far off the rails the party has gone to. And Brandon, I think this is accurate, but wasn't Newt Gingrich the first time the Republicans had a majority in the House in like 60 years or something yeah. ridiculous like that? Because the House was always Democratic because that's where the majority of legislation happened. That's right. And that's what the Republican or that's what the Democrats do. I, I forget who it At was. At some point, didn't uh, Newt Gingrich overreach? Isn't that why he eventually I, – I don't remember how – did he leave voluntarily in terms of leadership or did he get – I don't think he – he did not leave voluntarily. I what, feel like there was like a mutiny or there was some type what, of – What Newt did was was this, hey, if you want to get power, this is how we're going to do it. Me yeah. and these four dudes are going to run everything. All of you people underneath me, you're fundraisers. You're going to fundraise and vote the way we tell you to. And that's how we're going to do it because – when you have 225 people you have to wrangle, that's the only way you can do it. You little eight people led by Gates, you don't get to separate over here. You're right. not a separate party. This is a team sport, especially in the House. It's a team sport. You either get on this team. Th- there is no making another little team to get your way. That's not going to happen. There's been nobody willing to stand up, though. That's been the problem. I mean, McCarthy could have laid down the law, and he did He, absolutely he placated them, and, he, and by placating them, he empowered them. The next person, let's talk about the next person who's going to get a job, but the next person that gets that job needs to look at all of the, re- let's just, let's just do this first. Hakeem Jeffries is not going to be the speaker of the house. Do you agree with me on that, Brandon? 
Oh, yeah, no. That, no that's, way that's not going to happen. The Republicans will pick somebody and they will get their shit together. But they do may need to pick somebody a little bit that walks in with the attitude, you guys need me way more than I need you. These that, are my terms. If you don't want them, I got better shit to do than this. I, 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 I don't need this. I'm not Kevin McCarthy who doesn't feel like my political career was, was you know, not taken to its fruition if I don't get this job. That's exactly what they need. I mean, someone with the right tone and attitude, which is what they haven't been served well with. Does anybody do that anymore? Does anybody <laughs> hire people, Brandon, that they know are going to tell them unpleasant things? No. No. Well, and especially in the House and Senate, right? I mean, these people surround themselves by yes men and women. I mean, that's been the problem. They've worked themselves into such a frenzy. They had to, they had to go home for five days or six days after this because they were afraid of physical violence amongst right. the members. Well done, fellas. And so, again, you have this week of vacuum, essentially, which, again, just adds to the chaos. Uh, but no, nobody will give tough truths. I mean, that's why we have people, um, you know, like the late Senator Dianne Feinstein, who pass away in office, you know, because, you know, who it just, uh, it's, it's mind boggling. You, you've had to see the video of her just reaming those little kids in her office. Uh, with those little kids, like in sixth grade on you a told field me about trip, this. I did not see the. Video, and they though. show up and they say, "You need to pass this bill on climate change." And she's like, "And you're just a bunch of stupid kids who have no idea what they're doing." I, it, I did not see that. It, it's it's classic. <laughs> okay, Brandon. Tuesday we get the house shows back up. Patrick Mahidri is the interim speaker. Uh, I love the little banging that gavel down. And that bang, it looks so big in his hand too. And then he throws (laughs) Pelosi and stuff out. So glad to see we're we're all back back in the adulting. I am assuming, and I could be completely wrong, that this is Scalise, Jordan, or who's that guy? Emery, Emerit? Emmer, Tom Emmer. Oh, Tom Emmer has no chance. I mean, he's. They'll pick somebody. Somebody has to be picked, and it has to be done in one vote. I mean, it's likely going to be Scalise or. um, Jordan. Jordan. Although, again, if there was like actual like uh, Machiavellian strategy going on here, you would have some outreach or, you know, Democrats coming together with this group of mods and saying, hey, pick somebody like Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, who's like the most moderate Republican in the House, somebody we can live with, and let's do a unity speaker who will at least get us through the next you know, um, election without having this specter of another leadership uh, vote hanging over us. If I'm Scalise, Jordan, Comer, if I'm the leadership, I call everybody together. I catch you fucking talking to to Democrats about that. We'll run you. We will run you out. You will never, ever, ever be elected again. But the people they run out are the people that will lose the majority for them. I mean, that's that's the The people who are most at risk throughout this whole process are the the Republicans in Biden districts who are very um, at risk at this point in 2024. And the best way for all those people to lose their seats is to have a Democratic speaker. Because basically what it shows is we're not capable of being a majority party and we're basically we, we are we can only function as a minority party. The first thing you have to do if you're the leadership of the Republicans, you got to get a hold of of all of the Republicans, and you got to lay some rules down. For no, but guys. what I'm saying is that they they take one of like one of those Republicans from the ten Biden districts, whether it's John Bacon from Omaha or Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania, okay. and that person becomes the speaker. Um, you know, and they basically get, and the Democrats agree to that with all these concessions in terms of changing the, the way the yeah, House we're rules. Not, there's no way we can't have the Democrats elect the guy again. There's just there's no way we we will get we will get absolutely 
hammered. To me, that is the, ab- the worst outcome. The outcome we have to avoid is using Democrats to elect a speaker, either a Republican or a Democrat. That blows us completely. But that's assuming that the they water. can do it on their own. And that's I don't what know I'm saying. We have to. Th- this, is, this is my impassioned speech to the Republican leadership team. We must do this on our own. If we don't prove that we can lead with a majority, oh, I think we are too much. fucked. We yeah. are done. So if it were me, this is how we're going to do it. No, no rookies, nobody to take a risk on. There's three dudes. It's Jordan. It's this Emmert dude, or it's Galise. Pick, and that's who we're going with. So what? Uh, what makes me think that this that it's not going to be that smooth is because Lauren Boebert was <laughs> tweeting out earlier today that I mean she's back in Jim Jordan and she said she's willing to fork uh, forfeit the one vote to vacate rule uh, because she thinks Jim Jordan is trustworthy and she is getting just bent over the. Yeah. Coals, you know, for that, and oh. so all of these Did people you just are say sailing. she's getting bent over the. Coals? That was probably the wrong, <laughs> wrong phrase to use. I'm sorry. I so wanted to shout Beetlejuice out during that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Brandon, I interrupted you. Uh, so, but she is just, I mean, getting like uh, criticized left and right on Twitter by her base, saying you're a sellout, you can't do this. It doesn't matter who it is. Like we have to have that, you know, one person to vacate rule, uh, and that's our only leverage. And so, at the end of the day, if all eight get that type of pressure, I don't know that they're going to be willing to bend or give in. And as long as it'll bend on that, there's going to be that specter of chaos always looming over the I was stunned speaker. when on MSNBC, Byron Donaldson said, no, I'm not voting to get rid of the one, the one yeah. vote thing. No. He's like, that's, that's what we need. I don't think they can get rid of that vote. I, <sighs> that's what's going to be interesting. Because nobody worth their salt that can manage that this job is going to take it with that hanging No, why that's would not you? That's happen. insane. Yeah, it's... You, I just, yeah. So end of the day, do they get this done in one shot? Do we go through another uh, round of voting on multiple people? Do they just leave this McHenry guy in? I think there's at least two rounds of voting. Um, I could see McHenry, it kind of depends on what he does between now and then and whether he steps up and is willing to lead. But he could be a default that ends up becoming the speaker who's voted in if there's multiple rounds of voting and they don't get anywhere. I think there's going to be at least more than one round of voting. I don't see this getting done in one round. I, I just – if it could happen you know, when things were less chaotic with McCarthy and less chaotic is, again, all relative, and we're in like just mass chaos right now, and there's all of this like just – uh, bad blood yeah. now between so many members of the caucus. I just don't see it happening. Why didn't McCarthy just say, vote again? Vote again. Why not after... Why did he throw in the towel? Why not why after he, that first round? Didn't he call Akeem Jeffries and says, you're right, been kind of a dick about this. That would have been the easy you're thing. You're not going to get everything, but I'll, Compromise, gi- I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give you something. Lay it out and we'll, we'll do it. That would have been the easiest thing to do. I don't know if the Democrats played hardball and said no, or if McCarthy had just had enough and said, I'm, I'm done. I mean, from what I've read, he, I mean, he didn't make any offers. Didn't even try. So, yeah, did try, <laughs> which is just mind-boggling. So prediction, Brandon, as we leave this topic, what's your, who is the speaker the next time we get together in a week? Uh, gosh, I think, I think at the end of the day, um, it, it could probably be Steve Scalise. The wild card is if Trump gets involved and makes an endorsement of like Jim Jordan or something. Which you don't throw. believe Trump's going to try to take the speaker thing, do you? I mean, no. That, that's ridiculous. Oh, do you like the couple of members of Congress who are saying they're going to nominate him, though? Like, well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure 
the Speaker of the House has to know the inner workings of the legislation process pretty cold. Well, and they're supposed to. And also the Speaker has to, like, do work. Like, yeah. they have to show up. It's a hard like, job. Like, they have to count votes. Like, yeah, it's a – like, and, I mean, where does Trump have the time to even be there between all of his well, And the Speaker trials? of the House is not the head of the Senate. The Speaker of no. the House is a constitutionally defined position. Right. It carries some weight to it. It's number three in the, in the presidential line. It, succession, we, we yeah. We can't go with this seat empty. No. So you just think it's, it's got to be one of the Jordan. I think it's got to be one of them. I think, I think Scalise has the edge in terms of it sounds um, like having it. the non-crazy people consolidate around him, especially since, um, you know, I thought it was, or I guess I didn't think it was odd, but um, Scalise, there's bad blood between Scalise and McCarthy, which yeah. is why McCarthy is endorsing Jim Jordan. But Jim Jordan is much more aligned, you know, with the chaos caucus than Scalise yeah. is, who's been a member of the leadership team for a while. And we're not expecting a sudden turn to maturity here. This no. this could be the the absolute shit show it was and, this week, too. And I mean, this is all relative, right? This is picking between two of, like, the worst people. These are people that I would not personally consider if I were voting no. ever. So, no, no. But that's where we're at. I think where we're at is, ideally, the speakership takes on all of these roles around recruiting, electing, fundraising. Yeah. Uh, that might be too much for this for this speaker. Let's just get somebody who can function and return back to – and just return us back where it looks like we're – we're capable of handling the job. Oh, yeah, because I don't think either of these two top individuals no, have the no, competency no, no. to do fundraising. And, We're not and, going for perfect yeah. at this point. No. Brandon, have you been watching the former president at this uh, civil trial in New York this week? I have, like his scowling, his— uh, He looks big mad. Media antics. He is not happy. Um, it was also amusing to see that he fell off of the Forbes 400 richest <laughs> Americans this list, uh, list this week. Uh, so that had to, you know, really kind of rankle him. And those are the things I think that really, really hurt him. Oh yeah. I mean, that's really what he cares about. I mean, those perception, um, things as it relates to wealth and status. Um, I mean, it, it just, it, it bursts the bubble, the facade that he's created and that, and this whole trial, I think is what he cares more about than any of the, you know, any of the others related to January 6th or Mar-a-Lago documents, because this gets at the heart of this perception he's created that he is wealthy and successful. (laughs) Um, when, you know, it's being revealed that no, he inflated the value of his properties in some cases by, over a thousand percent. I mean, you're talking about just ridiculous inflation, uh, overvaluing properties. The idea that Trump has no problem with being convicted of sexual assault in the E. Jane, e. Jane <laughs> right. Carroll case, Could but care this less one, about that. Yeah, <laughs> is it is this worth our time? I, we talked about this a little bit during warm up. This is the hey over. I think everybody would agree over the Trump's entire career, he's played fast and ru- and loose with, with the rules with and what the, the law. rules and, and 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 we get this. I think that the defense here is some of this is baked in the cake. Um, this happens across you know big dollar uh, property investing. The how you estimate properties for loans versus taxes. It's a common practice to to kind of work that the, the best that you can. And at the end of the day, no bank or insurance company is bringing this suit. I've yet to see who actually lost in this whole thing. I'm not saying Trump hasn't brought right, this all on not, himself. And, I, and this is where I see a fairness issue here, because even though they haven't brought this on, like lying on financial documents is still lying. And there have been average people 
who have sure. um, falsified their um, home value for mortgage applications um, on a much smaller scale and have been prosecuted and imprisoned. Um, we had a congressional candidate, Republican congressional candidate here um, in Kansas back in um, 2000. 2002, who did the same thing. He had a house, um, lied about the value, not to the extent that Trump has overvalued assets, but on a mortgage application. It was discovered. He was prosecuted. He spent 10 years in federal prison, which at the time I thought was very severe for something like that. He went to prison for that? He went to prison for it. He got a 10-year sentence. Now, he may have got out early, but he actually did serve some years in prison. And so it just makes me think, though, if like average people can go to prison for you know, that level of falsifying information, like, why not Trump? Even if, you know, the victimhood is hard to ascertain or, you know, it is at the actual financial institutions bringing the suit, like, yeah. it's still falsifying records. Yeah. The, the two funniest things so far that I've gotten out of this is, one, in Trump's contracts, in the legal documents that he prepares about the value of his properties, he puts a clause in there that just says, I am upping this by 15 or 25% because of the Trump brand factor. So he has a clause where he basically says, I overvalue everything I have because my, my name's on it. He also has a clause. I think they said it was three paragraphs long that basically says, if you believe any of these numbers I've presented in this doc, you're an idiot. He basically just tells you, just tells you, you should take none of these numbers at face value and you should validate all of these independently because my numbers are all wrong. Well, that says a lot too about the lending <laughs> institutions. And it, it does. But also like his defense attorneys are trying to say, well, you know, as long as he says it is, a lot of this is based on your belief and your projection into what you think it is. So as long as you think it's worth a thousand percent more, like... Did you hear him say for one day on Tuesday, Mar-a-Lago was worth a billion on Wednesday, it was worth $1.5 Today, the tax assessor for that county or whatever filed some paperwork about, hey, we, we might need to look at this. Is this really worth? Because the tax assessment on it is $18 million. Yeah. So that's some very different broad numbers being, oh, yeah. being thrown around. Trump is a it's crook. so ludicrous. He's yeah. always a crook. He, he, he lies about everything. To me, this this is baked in the cake of, of Trump being a a liar and a criminal. I have no sympathy for him. If he loses a bunch of money in his businesses, I don't care. My only question is, is this, what, what are we really doing? Because I think what we're really doing is what happened today. This kooky judge basically told Trump, no move money in, no move money out of any businesses. No transferring well, that's the thing. to I Melania, mean, This is going to really shit. financially damage him because yep. – the punishment, if he is convicted for this, is um, dissolution of his, the Trump businesses. And a $250 I mean, million dollar fine. And, and, yeah, and that large fine. So his empire just crumbles um, after yeah. this. I mean, so there's some real consequences to him, consequences of the like he has not seen before. So that's what makes us stand out. I am also amused by the fact that his attorneys are so incompetent that they didn't ask for a jury trial, which would have served them well since this judge has already sure. clearly Absolutely. made a playing that he thinks Trump is guilty, but they didn't file the paperwork to ask for a jury trial. I mean, it just, well, you gotta... today the judge made an order there. Trump has over 500 LLCs around yeah. his business. And that's what he ordered. No money in, no money out. 
And he also ordered, I want a complete list of anybody that has an ownership stake or has made an investment in one of these 500 LLCs. Oh, wow. Who do you think's names are on that list? Yeah. There's a lot of information about Trump's finances, to your point. Some of it probably not that great about who he's doing business with. Oh, yeah. That's going to come out. One of the things, I think you're right that the reputational damage to Trump is what he really cares hates. about. But I think he also knows, too, this may be something where people get to poke around a little bit in some places that he just doesn't want people poking. Yeah, there's going to be some things, especially when you're talking about foreign entanglements that he doesn't want out there public. And it does it really serve him well when, you know, he's blasting Biden, um, you know, over things like this, when, you know, he's replete with all of these ethics, ethical conflict of interest. Brandon, I guess the lesson here is if you've got somebody you're, you're interacting with either personally or professionally, and they tell you the worst insult anybody could hurl at me was you're poor, you probably need to move on to somebody else. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Speaking of moving on to somebody else, let's hit on old Bob Menendez. Oh, Bob from New Jersey. Senator from New Jersey. Oh, Senator Bob. Uh, you know, for New Jersey politics, <laughs> you know, this is kind of like, yeah, shrug. I mean, this eh. isn't where we're used eh. to. New Jersey, Louisiana, both having corruption issues going back many, many decades. But Bob Menendez has long had, like, ethical issues that have kind of hung over him. Um, Now you have the DOJ investigation into bribery. I mean, this is like classic corruption. Like, all of the pieces are there. That he was basically bribed by foreign governments, including Egypt, to lobby on their behalf. (laughs) Direct bribes in the form of gold bars. Uh, And, you know, and these are governments, too, that have very poor human rights Tra- yeah. uh, track records uh so there's um and this is all the more problematic because mendendez is head of the senate foreign relations committee yes powerful committee that can do a lot in terms of redirecting aid to favored countries so you get bribed by egypt with gold bars hey you know give us aid overlook this human rights abuse issue and then all of a sudden voila you know they get you know um you know two billion in foreign aid and, and it wasn't the information he was sharing with egypt wasn't like what's the budget for the uh the Egypt fund this year. It was about agents on the ground, their movements, where people were, yes. where people were in other countries. And that I even speak into Egypt. that, the intelligence, the yes. information, which is, uh, I mean, the national security implications of that, let alone the the bribery in terms of redirecting money. I mean, yeah, so this has all the hallmarks of um, a real national security um, well, at stake in terms of the issues. Brandon, speaking from the Democrats, I mean, sure, we made this guy head of the the, the, the Foreign Relations Committee. One of the most, it's fair to say Bob Menendez is one of the 10 most powerful people in, in the federal government, isn't yeah. it? I mean, Brandon, how could we know he was a bad guy? <laughs> it's not like a few years back. I mean, we had just no indication For years that Bob was this. just this big a piece of shit, did we? Uh, we did. Um, <laughs> in fact, he has been uh, prosecuted and barely survived um, with a hung jury on previous counts. He has had ethical clouds hanging over him for many years. Um, he's been investigated before by the DOJ. So, yeah, I mean, this is uh, corruption is not new to Senator Bob Menendez. I mean, 
you know, corruption and Menendez go together like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, Bob learned his lesson last time. Eight years ago, Bob and a buddy tried to steal $26 million from Medicare. And it was some insurance fraud scam thing. That's complicated. That's electronic. To hell with that. I appreciate that Bob just went back to straight, straight old thievery being paid in cash that he's stuffing into pockets and sewing into jackets in his in his uh, in his closet and just being paid with good old fashioned gold bars. I mean, Bob's like all this electronic fancy stuff is how I got caught the last time. I'm just going straight old fashioned criminal at this point. Or the uh, which I respect. Or the sixty thousand uh, Mercedes convertible that was uh, you know he was bribed with uh, given to his wife. Uh, because after she ran over, right after she ran over and killed somebody. Yeah. Brandon, I don't know if, I don't know if you do this, but it's a really accepted banking process. Just, just take like a couple thousand bucks a month in cash and just start sewing it into your clothes because you never know when bank of America or commerce bank is going to close and take all your money. That was Bob's excuse, right? That, that that's what he experienced in Cuba. For years. Right. Uh, And he was born in the United States. So that's his newest line is, I mean, he's learned well. I mean, the Trump playbook, you know, deny, 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 and then also claim victimhood. So when you get attacked, say, well, my um, uh, attackers are racist. You know, it's because I'm Cuban. It's because I'm Hispanic. had the balls during a press conference to look right into the camera and say, and this is happening to me because I'm a Latino male. Yeah. Bob, just to run down real quick, Bob said that he had taken money out of the bank over the course of 20 years and stuffed it into his mattress because in Cuba, he was always afraid of the bank <laughs> bank leading him. Several problems with that. One, he's never lived in Cuba. Two, right. they looked at the money. The serial numbers go back like six or seven years. So it's not something he's he's done for for a decade. Also, too, they found – I guess they can find DNA on money, which is horrifying. But yeah. they found the DNA from the dude from Egypt that, that gave him the bribes on the money itself. Oh, yeah. Itself. The, the, the fingerprints are yeah. all over I mean, this it, cash. It, it's yeah. everywhere. The gold bars he got paid for. Like they say you directly property more, of Egypt You cannot have more direct evidence. No. This <laughs> is – and Bob Menendez is doing what all politicians do. Instead of hanging your head in shame and skulking off – he is playing this indignant fighter. This is something that this is a an attack on me. It's personal. It's racist, and I will fight to the end. Bob, can you just can you can we just exit you off stage? It's not going to do do him any no. favors in the long run. I mean, the entire New Jersey delegation has uh, called for him to resign. He is polling very dismal numbers back home in New Jersey. I mean, yeah. he's done. I mean, if he may not see the writing on the wall, but it's there. No Democrat is going to come to defend him either. No, there, there's nobody None that has. That's yeah. A, how, how in the world is he the chairman, Brandon, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? How? That should have never happened in the first place. I mean, that's, that's an egregious sin on behalf of the Democratic Party leadership. I say this all the time. If you want to know as Democrats why we never have the power that our numbers and frankly, our messaging dictate we should have. It's over stupid shit like this. Well, And don't forget, too, that there is a contrast between the House Democratic leadership in the Senate. Hakeem Jeffries is one of the kind of new young guns, the rising kind of younger generation yeah. leaders. 
the Senate, you have Chuck Schumer, <laughs> you know, who's part of the old guard. I mean, you know, you have, they're still, you know, Nancy Pelosi has passed a baton, but that baton has not been passed on the Senate side. And the Senate is still a very chummy club where it's yeah. based upon seniority. Everybody's and 100 so long, years old. Regardless of allegations or the ethical conflict swirling around you, you're still going to get chairman of this committee because you've been here a long enough time and you've earned it, you know. There's that mentality that's pervasive in the Senate. Something tells me that you were excited about the young guns and you, <laughs> you kind of thought that, Hey, these are okay. Maybe I'm assuming. But well, I mean, at that I point, was, yeah, at that point like, I was, yeah. So these have, are valid people moving forward. These are serious people. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you know that I think it was ironically the day that McCarthy was ousted yeah. was the anniversary, the when 20 year anniversary. Cantor of the, got whacked. Well, no, not Cantor, but, uh, the weekly standard had on its cover, the three young guns and they had okay. young guns, um, and about the future of the party. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and it was, um, yeah, it was Eric Cantor. It was, um, Kevin McCarthy and it was, uh, uh, Paul. Paul. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so all three of them, they were the rising stars exactly 20 years ago. And it's just, it's crazy to look back now and see that, um, all of them are gone. So for all of those three's youngness and gunness, for all of Paul Ryan's bitching about entitlements and budgets, I can't remember what Cantor was. It seems like now is we're at the end. What, what did we get anything out of those three? No, nothing. I, but, we got nothing, nothing. But, but it also shows how much the party has changed. They were supposed to be a new generation of leadership and they, but Brandon, that's why the party's changed. They got, they delivered nothing, nothing. Right. I mean, yeah. these were the three that were going to take and what hit 15 years later, what have we got? Nothing, nothing. We're 33 trillion in debt. The Republicans are a shell of what they, 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 they once were. They're fighting for any political power they can. They're dealing with this, this person on high that they know is going to crush them at some point. If I'm, a Repu- if I'm Matt Gates or one of those folks, what has all of this gotten is my question. Yeah. What did, what did we get from the young guns? Name one policy change. Name one thing Paul Ryan changed from a financial statement, from a financial perspective. One thing he got done. Well, he, I mean, he, he was the one who technically was the architect of the, the tax cuts during Trump's presidency. Uh, oh, oh, a Republican got a tax cut through. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm but not you're right. Giving, I mean, they did giving no credit for that. They didn't I'm make sorry. progress on any of these big nothing. Uh, yeah, nothing. Issues. Yeah, I mean, you're 100 percent correct. I mean, I would argue, like in the case of Eric Cantor, I mean, his political career was cut short yeah. in a Tea Party primary. I mean, very early. You're talking about yeah. many years ago during the 2014 Obama administration is when he got clipped. Yeah, um, he got clipped early on. The other two were there much longer. But yeah, overall, I think you're right. I think that it it shows the genesis of. Um, the times changing, the electorate changing in terms of what they expect and want out of the party, um, the cynicism that's widespread yeah. with uh, the Republican Party, which is why the extremists with the burn it down approach have gained traction. I mean, the fact of the matter is like, and that's where um, uh, DeSantis has failed because he's been going after Trump on things like entitlements and everything. The Republican Party basis to care about that. They don't care about no. cutting entitlements. Most of them are baby boomers who get Medicare right now. Um, they care about rhetoric and they care about you know, a strongman image. And so that's why none of DeSantis's traditional Republican attacks yeah. are sticking when it comes to Trump. Well, and I'll, I'll channel Gates for, for a while. Um, 
why not just come to Congress for clicks and brand building? Clickbait. And, I mean, these three yeah. were supposed to be super serious, super smart, super young. Take us to the promised land. They didn't do anything. No. So, and, and he's learned you can get rewarded for it. Yeah. I mean, Ted Cruz, you know, proved that early on, right? So, I mean, if you look at Ted Cruz as a model, which I'm sure Gates did, um, there's the path to follow. And somebody else who's following that path is uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. God. You know, he is going directly down that same road in terms of being personality, self-branding, yeah. all, you know, just cameras, talking to anybody and everybody that'll listen to him. Um, and it doesn't matter that, you know, he's a big phony. It's... And at the end of the day, he doesn't care because it's going to gain him stature. It's going to gain him long-term power. And that's what he's after. If if I'm Gates, I'm sitting there and saying, okay, the Democrats were able to message democracy is in peril based off what Trump did and cut off a red wave that should have been there, right? Right. They took a, a message. They, they they formulated it into a... a um, they, they formed a message for candidates that they executed in elections and they, they made results. They gained more power because of it. If I'm Gates, we've been sitting here Republicans for 40 years bitching about the debt and we've turned it into zero political power. I'm done. Light a match to it, burn it down. I, I don't care. I, while Gates is an idiot and I strongly believe he's going to get thrown out of the, the, the Republican caucus. He probably needs to get thrown out of Congress, too. Yeah. Because he's just a flame-throwing moron. But I hate to say it, he does have a point. And the point is, Republicans, why is it every time we gain power, we can't turn it into anything? And I think that's what, that, that's what Gates, in, in, in the worst way, is expressing. He's, he's doing it like a total moron. He deserves to be thrown out. But I understand the sentiment that he's bringing to the table. Well, and that sentiment is uh, represented by many of the base voters, you know, as well. So, I mean, he's channeling some of that same anger that they have. And do Republicans really care about the debt? Is this really an issue? Because oh, I mean, I they proved that they didn't care about it during yeah. the four years of the Trump administration where they exploded it. I mean, no, no. they don't care about it. Brandon, I think the high is going to start being in the 50s kind of uh, later on. Yeah, we're looking at uh, looks cool like we're fall officially weather. falling here. And thank God. <laughs> Have you seen any of the, the photos of that sphere thing opening in Vegas? I have, yeah. I'm excited to see that. At some I'm going to be there. I think the 23rd of October for for you two. Me and oh, buddy nice. are running out to Vegas for that. So well, that's it'll be, be cool. interesting to see uh, how that how that looks. Well, and they have plans to build others in a few other places too. I don't. There's know one going up in London, I yeah. think too. The problem with that branded, it, it, it's going to be a problem for a lot of younger people. Is it's a little bit of a problem for me. I have to time my drug use exactly for intersecting with that building. You get oh, too okay. high, you take too many edibles or something, <laughs> you get in there with all the pictures. It's I was going to say, that could be a little dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I got to really plan this out exactly. The guy I'm going with is a school teacher who like doesn't touch anything, so I guess I can lean on him if I get too drunk. I was say, yeah, so you'll have like yeah, somebody who can kind of help you out of there, yeah. You take any trips here to, to round out the, the summer, or did, did Eastern Europe wipe you out? You're, you're done for the year. I, I think I have a couple of trips left in me. I'm going to Boston, just doing a weekend in yeah. Boston later in October. God, Boston's a fun city. Um, and then, I don't know, I may, I have not done a weekend in Vegas, I think, 
at all this year, maybe. Yeah. I did several last year, so yeah. I may get to Vegas before end of the year. Yeah. Vegas is one of those places that, I mean, you can go in November, December. Absolutely. So that's a good And escape. that sphere thing. I think YouTube plays there for three months. I'll have and to look at their schedule because that would be good to go see. I mean, some of those videos, I mean, YouTube is looking, one of the reasons they took this gig is because, so they don't want to tour anymore. Ah. And I get that. They can just let the crowd come to them, but man, you two is looking a little afraid. They are looking their age at this point in time. <laughs> That's understandable. Brandon, I need a young band to follow. I just can't find any I like because I'm old and I don't yeah. like any young people music. <laughs> it's it's different. It's not the same. Yeah, there isn't really. Any, Do you listen to a lot of music that you can't understand the words? I listen to some. I'm okay. not. I'm, but I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of listening to that type of music either because no. I feel like I need to know at least enough words to be able to hum along a yeah. few bars, yeah. say a couple of the words. If I can't, if I can't say anything, if I can't understand any of it, then well, it, and then my daughter who's 23 fun. sends me all this music like Noah Khan. He's like really big. I've heard of him, but I haven't. I don't know that I've listened and to other folks. Stuff. And it's just the most fucking depressing stuff ever. Like emo type of So it's either music. like rap hip hop stuff and I don't right. understand what's going on or it's just depressing as shit. Yeah. I'm sure there's more out there. You just I just gotta look a little bit harder. Probably. Some of the more <laughs> kind of indie bands who are kind of up and coming, you might find something. That's me, in- indie band guy. <laughs> I think that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.